We're in Deuteronomy 20. When we closed in Deuteronomy 21, or Deuteronomy 19 the other night, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, we're talking about false witnesses. And afterwards, Bob made the comment and talking about applying it to Christ. Uh, Christ is one who experienced the penalty or, 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 the, or knew what it was like to experience false witnesses, those bearing false testimony against him. And so it's amazing how many different ways these things can apply to Christ, these laws that are given. But let's open in Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, When you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots, and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. Now it shall come about when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint hearted, do not be afraid, or panic, or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So when the people are involved in battle, when they are involved in what we might speak of as holy war, there are several stages of this that you see uh, in the Old Testament. First of all, when a group of people were involved with war, what I mean by holy war is they would invoke God and ask His guidance before the conflict. You see this numerous times with David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 19, 2 Samuel 5 and verse 23. David would inquire of God before battle and ask God whether or not he should go to battle. So he would inquire of the Lord. And when they inquired of the Lord, remember too that uh, the men, the men that were going to battle, had to consecrate themselves. Uh, They kept themselves pure. They kept themselves from women. You see a reference to that in 1 Samuel 25, in verse 4 and 1 Samuel 21, verses 4 and 5. Also in 2 Samuel 11, verse 11, we may have a reference to that as well. They inquired of God, uh, they kept themselves um, pure from women, and they destroyed what God told them to destroy. If God told them to um, to destroy everything, they were to do it. If God told them uh, that they were to take someone alive, they were to do that. But you go out to battle against your enemies, and your enemy has horses and chariots and more numerous people than you have. And in the case where that is the situation, God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That is stress. 
in verse 1. It is stressed in verse 3. Don't be faint-hearted. Don't be afraid or panic or tremble. They have confidence in the Lord. This confidence is based upon the Lord's deliverance in the past. In verse 1, For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. They have confidence because of what God has done in the past. And in verse 4, what they believe God will do in the present. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, horses and chariots. As we listen to that today, those words sound... Um, you know, that sounds insignificant, doesn't it? That's not how a nation measures its power and strength. But these were the greatest military weapons of that day and time. Remember Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some boast in horses and some in chariots. But we will remember the Lord our God. Some boast in these weapons and put their confidence in them. And a king is not saved by a mighty army, the Bible tells us in Psalm 33. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Joshua 11. Joshua 11. Israel was in a battle with the king, King Jabin of Hazor. And Hazor was a large city uh, in Palestine at this time. But in Joshua 11 verse 4, I want you to notice what the text says. It says, they came out, this is Jabin and his army. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many as the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Now here's the exact same situation that is described in Deuteronomy 20. The nation has more people than you have. They are more numerous than you are. They were as many as the sand on the seashore. They also had very many horses and chariots, according to verse 4. But the Lord appears to them and says in verse 6, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Don't be afraid of them. Even though they have better weapons, they have horses and chariots, even though they have more people, don't be afraid of them. Now our battle is not with flesh and blood. As Ephesians 6 and verse 12 says. Is it easy for us in the midst of our battles, our conflicts, our trials to become afraid, to become faint-hearted, to let the Goliaths of the world shout us down while they have no substance to back them up, but we seek to represent the Lord. May God help us to remember these words and to apply them to ourselves when we face 
our conflicts and our battles. I want you to notice something though. And I want to ask your thoughts on it in just a second. But look at verses 5 through 9. In verses 5 through 9, we have the officers approaching the people and they give the people exemptions from battle before the battle took place. For example, in verse 5, the Bible says, Who is the man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? He is allowed to go back and to dedicate the house lest he die in battle and another man do it. Then verse 6 applies that same language to the one who plants a vineyard. Who is the man who's planted a vineyard and not not begun to use its fruit? In verse 7, who is the man who's engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house. Now, All of these passages, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, mention the possibility that someone in this situation might die in battle. Do you all find it interesting that the Lord is with them and the Lord's going to give them victory, but that does not mean every single soldier will survive. Also, I would say one thing that's striking about this. If you not dedicated a house, go back and dedicate it. If you planted a vineyard, go back and get it through. If you engage your wife, that makes me look at that excuse in Luke 14, 20. I've married a wife and cannot come a little bit different way. Uh, in context, that is not an acceptable excuse, remember. And I think in the context of the Gospel of Luke, people often used family arrangements as an excuse to turn down the call of the Gospel. I think that's the point, contextually. But it does make you look at it different. And in Deuteronomy 24, in verse 5, when a person got married, they were free from military duty for a year. So, but another thing that the official said, the officer said in verse verse 8, the officer speak and says, Who is the man who is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him turn back. And the point of this is that panic not spread among the people. In verse 8, let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Now, that particular word melt that is used here in verse 8, they don't want him to make his brother's heart melt. That was the same word used in Joshua 2.11 to describe Rahab talking about the response of all the people of the land knowing that the Lord had given the land into Israel's hand. And after the waters of the Jordan River were divided in Joshua 5 verse 1, the hearts of the kings melted. So this word is used to describe the kind of fear that crept into the enemy armies. 
God doesn't want this coming among his people. So he says, whoever is afraid, let him go back so he doesn't make his brother's heart melt. Now there's one time in the Old Testament where we see that question being asked before battle. Who is afraid? Where do you see that question being asked? Gideon. Gideon. Gideon went from an army of 32,000 to 10,000. So he lost more than two-thirds of his men by making this statement, whoever is afraid, let him go back. But in this passage, they are promised victory in their conflicts, but it doesn't mean every soldier will survive. But they are told the Lord will be with them, not to be faint-hearted, not to panic, but to trust in God. Now, what questions or ideas do you all have on those verses? Anything? For, for me, it reminds me that in, in our world, if we have our spiritual house in order for God, no matter what battle we go up against, it doesn't matter. Because your spiritual, and it's just like the Apostle Paul when he said, it, it's better for me if I die, but it's better yeah. for you if I don't. But I'd yes. rather die and go home be with the Lord. So it doesn't matter yes. what situation that we're in with our spiritual battles as long as our house of God is in there. Yes. And to say that and to seek to live that means. This is a passage from 2 Corinthians 5 or 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Did that apply to Israel? When Israel goes out to battle and the enemy has greater weapons and they have greater numbers of people, did they have to walk by faith to trust God to give them victory against a powerful foe? Of course they did. Do we have to do the same today? Do we have to do the same in our conflicts? Does it take faith to affirm that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? As Philippians 1.21 that, that Nina referred to. It, it takes a lot of faith to say that. It's not based simply on what we see. It's based on faith. What else? What, what other ideas? When we leave this place or a similar place and go out into the world, we are automatically outnumbered. We are automatically, you know, million yes. to one, whatever. I don't even know what type of a ratio is. And so to remember not to be afraid and not, you know, that's yes. a good lesson. And then just now I thought of the city of Dothan and the chariots of chariots and horses of fire that were there and unseen and how we should also kind of remember we may not actually be outnumbered those who are for us are more than those who are for them as 2 Kings 6 that Sarah referred to makes reference Um, that that is a powerful thing we have to remember the Lord is with us as Romans 8 31 says if the Lord be with us who can be against us but listen, I, I know this is about like everything. And this is true of almost everything. It's easier to say than to do. 
But in truth, we have to try to trust God in the midst of those circumstances. David? Yeah, I find it interesting that he tells them, don't be afraid, don't be faint hearted. In verse 48, yeah, verse 1. But then in verse 8, if you are afraid and faint hearted, then leave. Uh-huh. And maybe the answer is what you just said. It's easy to say, but hard to do. Yeah. yeah. But he does give an out for those that don't have enough faith to not be afraid. Well, right here in the midst of this room, to think about Israel being afraid of Jabin, the king of Hazel, and his army is kind of foolish, isn't it? You know, I wouldn't be afraid of Jabin. Um, you know, till you know, till we're in that situation, we have to face it. But 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 you're right. Is um, it, it's they give the, the they give the ideal. They hold up before them the goal to put their complete confidence in God. And for those whose hearts are weak and melting, uh, they are given this state, this way out. But isn't that even more an attestment to God? I mean, we've got this situation with Gideon too. But just the fact of what other army is going to live by these standards of that? I'll give I'll give you a way out, and there may be several people, and yeah. and, and even if you're afraid and all that, like. No other army, they would shoot deserters. Yeah. So, yeah. like, to, for God to say, I'm going to win, even if yeah. a bunch of you leave, kind of yeah. thing. Uh, even if you have legitimate things, like you got a mm-hmm. house, or God doesn't, he's not trampling on their humanity, though, either. Imagine it's yeah. taking a year or two to have to build a house, mm-hmm. or a year or two to have to plant a vineyard. Mm-hmm. You know, that that that's... God isn't, you know, just so emotionless towards those types of things. Yeah, he's very caring. He's very humane, you know. <laughs> what you said when you said I mean, God's going to win the battle anyway. Gideon was told, like I said, whoever's afraid, let him go back home. Loses two-thirds. Then God says, that's still too many. And you go down to the water and you see how they lap. And you take those who lap like a dog, 300 of them, and through them I'm going to give the victory. The very fact that all those exemptions are given is a statement that their battles are not won merely by numbers. Their battles are won by his power. So even these exemptions, in a way, enforce what is said about God's power. Now, verses 10 through 18 are going to deal with approaching cities in battle in these kind of holy war circumstances. Verses 10 through 15 deal with approaching a city that is far away. And verses 16 through 18 deal with approaching a city that is near. Let's read some of these words. Verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. It shall come about if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you. Then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. 
When the Lord your God gives it into your hands, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in it, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourselves. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Verse 16, only in the cities of those peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that you may not, they may not teach you to do according to their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So when you come up to a city in verses 10 through 15, to a city that is far away from you. You offer it terms of peace. You seek peace if you can have peace. And if they are willing to agree to you, to live peacefully with you, then they are forced laborers of yours. However, if they do not make peace, when the Lord gives the city into your hand, and notice verse 13 is still assuming victory. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, they kill the men with the sword. They kill those who are warriors, but the women, the children, the animals, those are kept alive. And he says, this is the strategy for those cities which are not nearby. Now, I want to tell you what I find amazing about this law. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and ask how many of you, I want you to think in your heart about this, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you knew this distinction between how they were free, cities that were nearby, and cities that were far away? Were you familiar with this distinction? People in that day were. Where do you see an example in the Old Testament of a group of people who knew this law? Gibeonites. The Gibeonites in Joshua 9 said, We've come from a far country. We've come from a far country. And they said, how do we know that you come from a far country? How do we know you don't live right here in the land? And they say, well, look at this friend. Look at how moldy and dry it is. When we left, it was hot out of the oven. And look at our sandals, how worn out they are. We, they were brand new when we set out on this journey. And Israel sampled of their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't inquire of the Lord. And as a result... They didn't realize they lived right near them in the land. The, the people of the Jebusites were actually Hivites. 
in uh, verse 17 one of the groups that Israel should have eliminated. Now, what was the penalty for the Gideonites? You remember? For slavery. So basically, they experienced the consequences of this. They were made woodcutters and water carriers there in Joshua chapter 9. But, but they are a group of people that, that experienced this treatment of ones uh, that had come from far away, of a city that's far away. But, but God said, you're not to offer these conditions for those people who live right there among you. You're not to give them this chance, but you are to utterly destroy them and to not leave alive anything that breathes. God's treatment of these nations was not His way to deal with unbelievers of all time. It was a specific instruction for a specific time. And That is a very good question. It's a very good question. Um, if, if you couldn't hear, and you know, God said to destroy these people that live right here among you because they may make you serve their gods. That was stated particularly in Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4. If you intermarry with them, you will worship their gods. Ver- Chapter 20, verse 18, says that same kind of thing. But yes, not only here in chapter 20, but also in chapter 21, in verses 10 through 14, they are allowed to marry among some of these nations. How do you, how do we view that? I take it that there is something about the level of the corruption in these nations that are in the land of Canaan right now where they will not be redeemed and they will lead the Israelite men astray. There may have been something among them that did not exist among some of the other peoples. As a general rule, yes, they would have served other gods. No other people served Yahweh, but maybe they weren't as hardened ends. But remember, God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And God waited a long time to send judgment on these people. But, but you may not have been satisfied with the answer and see your hand back up and That, that is a good point. That is that is a good point. Um, you, you, yeah, you may be onto something there, Bob. Uh, I was thinking along the line 
the people that they're going in to dispose of, you know, get out of the way, are the ones that God has already placed judgment against. At the time of their iniquity was full. It was time for these nations. Not the other nations around. Yeah. And so that's, I think, the distinction. Yes, and, and somehow God sees more than we see. And what he reveals of himself leaves us, leaves us with questions. But it doesn't mean there aren't answers to these that you know, we just are not given all the information. So, so yes, it, it was time for these nations to be destroyed. That is a good question, though. And, and I would have been disappointed if somebody hadn't asked that question. So, uh, but it's a very good question. I don't know if it's a, it's a good answer, but Tony? Yeah, so the question that I, I always hate asking about this, though, is why, why the destruction of, utter destruction even of, of children? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've heard that someone said, well, it's not exactly that, or maybe they're, they didn't do that. When he says utterly destroy, he doesn't mean utterly destroy. Uh, it doesn't seem that ambiguous. No, it does not. I, I grant that, and I and I agree with that assessment. It does not seem ambiguous. In some cases, they are particularly specified as being subject to destruction. In First Samuel fifteen verses two and three, and I recognize this is difficult. I I look back, and I had actually, and I think I've told you all this. I preached about what about the problem of having to destroy the Canaanites and things like that. I, I preached on that years ago, 30 years ago. I never necessarily wrestled with that emotionally till after September 11th. That not only are warriors who are planning to kill you being killed, but also innocent children being killed. I don't know all the answers, Tony, but I would say this, that ultimately we are serving the God who created them and who loved them more intensely than we can ever imagine. And he is the one who provided the instruction. His ultimate desire is to bless all nations and to save all peoples through his son. But yes, I can see that yes, it is, it is difficult to explain. Um, we may not have all the answers, but I think we have plenty of reasons for faith. So is there, is there some consolation though in that God knows hearts and that even children are non or he doesn't condemn children children and so yeah. it might be I'm, it doesn't sound great it's not a great answer always but you know part of this is going to be around me not just what are the what are the scholastic things or what are the legal things here we're trying to figure out just like asking last time about uh, the avenger of blood and things like that trying to understand what how does god view these things and what are we to learn so we can think like God ourselves mm-hmm. in these types of situations and, and this is one I wrestle with. 
I do too. And I do too. And, um, and so that's, it is a good question. Um, Sarah? That didn't happen much in the ancient Near East in, in battle and conflict. Um, and so we're leaving with some question marks on this issue, but I will say this. I, I was in a discussion like this one time, and a person who was just critical of the Bible because God is stating this. And all of a sudden, it hit me after we were talking about how this conversation has started. The conversation has started with us disagreeing on the subject of abortion. Now, listen, you're going to act like it's out of place for God to make a decision in some specified cases which were the exception rather than the rule that God says, I created this life, I can take this life. And we're going to make those decisions, and yet then you're going to turn around and use the same thing against God, saying that God is not good. And that's just not a valid argument. You, you are making some good statements, and someone else had their hand, Mike. I think it's important to, to remember the big picture, though, is that, you know, number one, God knows and knew the hearts of, of men. Yeah. And his goal for all of these rules was to create a nation, a holy nation. They were controlled like he was holy. Yeah. And he knew that if they would follow these, that they would be able to do that. But we, the irony of it is, is that even with all these rules, they did not do this. And because of that, their heart was turned away from God. Yeah. And they followed um, other nations anyway. Well, you do see with them failing to do it, failing to drive out the Canaanites, the negative impact it had on this nation. So when God says it, there is a purpose for it, even if emotionally we, we wrestle with that. And, and we just have to trust Him and rely upon Him. Um, I, I want to accompany this. Let's... let's we're going to try to cover at least 21, 1 through 9. And I want us to see the high reverence for life. I want us to see, as we get into this discussion, how highly God values life. Uh, in verses 19 through 20, let's go quickly. The text says, when Israel is besieging a city... And they come up against the city to build siege works. It tells them that they could cut down the trees that are not fruit trees. But those trees that are fruit trees were not to be cut down. 
They were not to be cut down because they could continue to provide for you. So verses 19 and 20 give that instruction. Now, verses 20, chapter 21, 1-9. I want us to see in the midst of this discussion, which is uh, a good, good questions being asked and good proposals. I, I don't know all the answers. We're just trying to, to figure it out. But I want us to see the profound reverence that God has for life. If a slain person is, is found lying in the open country, in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it's not known who has struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. It shall be the city which is nearest to the slain man. That is, the elders of the city shall take a heifer of the herd. And notice how this heifer has never been used for any other purpose. For, for It says in verse 3, which has not been worked, which is not pulled in a yoke. Verse 4, the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water. And this valley was one, in verse 4, which has not been plowed or sown. And you shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Verse 5. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. And the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel and blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them so you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord okay a man is found murdered in the open country no one knows what had happened. No one knows the circumstances of this. But it's obvious that it is a homicide. What they did, the elders and the judges measured to see which city was nearest to this one who was slain. When they determined which city was the nearest, the elders of that city went down into this Valley with running water, with this heifer which hadn't been yoked and which hadn't pulled a yoke, and, and it was, his neck was broken. And this is a type of a sacrifice, it's not put up on the altar, but it's a type of a sacrifice where the neck is broken, the animal is killed, and um, the priests are there. But the Bible tells us the elders wash their hands. Wash your hands and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. But forgive your people. God regarding human life as so serious, so profound, that when a murdered man was found outside the city, the nearest city bears some sense of guilt. Even if no one knows who the guilty party is. 
I want to tell you, it is, it's a sad, scary thing to think about how many murders in our culture go absolutely unsolved. But here, blood guilt rested on the city and the heifer was offered as a type of a sacrifice. The elders of the city washed their hand and they asked in verse 8 for forgiveness. Forgive your people Israel whom you have redeemed. And since then the blood guiltiness will be forgiven them. But it shows the profound reverence for human life. So whatever answers we come up with, In our discussion that we had earlier about why God said to utterly destroy the Canaanite, it must be viewed from this lens that God views each life as important, each life as serious, and it is a profound wrong to take human life, to take human life. And even the people who just live around where it's done, Now, how does that apply to our culture where there are so many unsolved murders? I I don't know all the answers to that. But I know bloodshed leaves a stain upon a land like nothing else, according to Numbers 35. And therefore, when we approach such life, abortion, where an ultrasound gives us a window into the womb, and we can see a child, a child with a beating heart before birth. And often parents operate on a child before birth. There was a picture several years ago from Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville where there was a baby with spina bifida and the doctor was operating and the baby reaches his tiny hand outside the room and takes hold of the doctor's finger. Some of you saw that. We have profound reverence for life in the womb. And we have reverence for life as people grow older. Listen, I'm not trying to say that if the doctor tells you, and I know a person in this situation, they say, you've got to know some here, the chemotherapy. Or six months without it. And the person realized that they're going to feel better those six months instead of being in pain for all that year. And they said, I'm going to try it without it. I'm not trying to criticize that at all. No, not at all. Our obligation is not to extend our earthly life as long as possible. But I'll tell you what is wrong. Actively taking it. Actively taking an inconvenient life because they're not dying soon enough. Or starving disabled people because they're inconvenient. Those things don't fit 
with the picture of this passage and the profound reverence for life that they call for. Um, I saw a hand a moment ago, Tony. Katrina and I talked about so from Numbers 35, Joshua 20. We looked at that from, from Wednesday. Yeah. Um, that even if someone has accidentally killed someone, that it's not just that they can be found guiltless, and so therefore not their blood wouldn't be required of them, but they're still required to go and stay in a city of refuge. And so it still upends their life, and they have to stay there until the high priest dies. Yeah. Um, that if they leave that city... They could be freely killed by an avenger of blood. And yes. that, that avenger is then guiltless also. But then, so the, the, point, the point is that why, why does God then require this person who has accidentally killed someone to up in their lives? It's not like they can just walk away scot-free and like mm-hmm. nothing's wrong. And I think maybe part of the point is, is that the seriousness of, of a life lost and so, yes. even though you are guiltless before God, there's still kind of these physical consequences that need to go with that, yeah. of that a life is still lost. And so it's not just, and so how should we deal with that today? And, you know, maybe there should be laws that we should enact that respect some of those things or yeah. should allow for all of us to have to pay a little bit for all of that. Um, but how then do you, would you act if, if someone... Uh, you accidentally killed, what would you do? Yeah, I'm not saying that we have to find all the specifics, but do you think about that? Yeah. Do you think, would I help take care of uh, their family, or would I provide these things, or would I pay for the funeral cost? All, all those types of things yeah. that God's saying, maybe you should think about that, because this, though it's not, not intentional, it's still, they yeah. still died by your hand. Your principle is that, that it's still a profound thing to take a human life. Even if uh, cases where it um, could not be avoided. And um, so it is a so profound thing. For a thing. city, maybe we should think about that societally. Yeah, it, it, it is. Yeah, it's hard to know the answers. and uh, But... I do think it teaches us to have a profound respect for life. And I, and I, talking to a person once um, who stated that he had taken someone's life in a uh, car accident. He said, he said, the person pulled out right in front of me. And he said, there was absolutely nothing I could do. I I could not maybe. He just pulled out and I hit him. And he made the observation. He said, I know intellectually I am innocent in that case. But he said, I have nightmares continually where I see that man's face. And he said, sometimes so bad that my wife has to wake me up screaming. He said, how in the world can a person live with themselves after taking a life when there's such profound implications 
for taking one by accident like that. And so, again, the bottom line is that all this text, this text calls for a profound reverence for life. Even later, at the end of the chapter, we will see for the life of a criminal who was properly convicted and executed. Still, there is a certain respect for life that goes along with it. Okay. Lord willing, we'll be on... um, um,